0: Welcome to the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd, Pelham, Alabama podcast. This is your host, Deacon Andrew Brazier. John chapter 13, verse 34, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for drawing us together this morning to study your word and to have fellowship with you through your sacraments. We pray that you would speak now for your servants are listening. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Roe v. Wade was passed in 1973. The Supreme Court ruled that the Due Process Clause in the 14th Amendment applied to women's rights when it came to the issue of abortion. And this legalized abortion across the country. Since then, over 61, have, 61 million babies have been aborted in America. But there's good news amidst all this. Roe versus Wade is being challenged today in the court systems. It's very exciting to see what God is doing. This year alone, four states have passed heartbeat bills aimed at banning abortion. Missouri is currently moving to pass a bill outlawing abortion after eight weeks of gestation. And if you kept up with the news this past week, our own very Alabama, our own state of Alabama, has uh, passed the heartbeat bill into law, signed by Governor Kay Ivey this past week. Very exciting to see what God is doing. And I have to sit back and think... That our prayers are being heard. When we go out and we pray at Planned Parenthood that God would end abortion in America, it seems that's what God's up to, doesn't it? It's very exciting. In our text today, we look at John chapter 13. And Jesus says, I give you a new commandment to love one another in the way that I have loved you. Now you may be thinking, why are you talking about abortion in the midst of this commandment of love? And there's an answer. The answer is, and I'm sure you've already experienced this, when you engage the issue of abortion, which is going to be the hot topic issue on social media and in your regular conversations over the next several weeks and over the next several months, you are going to be accused of being a hateful person if you stand up for the life of a baby. You are going to be told that How can you be a Christian? Aren't Christians supposed to be people of love? What about Jesus? Doesn't Jesus love? Oh, you're such a hateful Christian. Get out of here. Is that what's going on in this text? Is Jesus telling us that you can't have an opinion on anything? Or is Jesus telling us that you have to actually stand up for immorality in order to be considered a person of love? Not at all. We're going to examine this text in light of the current debates going on in the culture today. But before we do that, I want us to point out the importance of this commandment. This is given right before Jesus' death on the cross. And as I'm sure you know, if you know that you're about to die, the things that you say become very important. The things that you want to communicate, the conversations you wish to have with friends and family carry a lot of (coughs) weight, That's what Jesus is saying in in chapters 13, 14, and 15. He knows he's on his way to the cross, and he's giving his last bit of instruction to his disciples before he goes to the cross. Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you would love one another. Let me just pause there. What's this idea that this is a new commandment? If we're not careful, we may draw a false dichotomy that the Bible itself does not teach. We may think that, oh, this is the new commandment, which means the God of the New Testament is a God of love and acceptance. The God of the Old Testament is a mean, angry, wrathful God. Is that what's going on here? No, of course not. The God of Scripture, Yahweh, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The God of the Old Testament is every bit as loving as the God of the New Testament because it's the same God. There's no false dichotomy between Old Testament and New Testament, a God of wrath on one hand and a God of love on the other hand. The commandment to love was given in the Old Testament. So why does Jesus say, this is a new command? It can't be new as far as this has never been taught before. What's the idea that it's a new command then? I think the idea here is that it's new in quality. Jesus says and commands us that we are called to love just as I have loved you. He qualifies how we love now. You see, before, when we look at the Old Testament law, we see that the first four commands are all about loving God. The latter six commands in the Ten Commandments is all about loving neighbor. We can turn to the law and say, this is how we're to love God. This is how we're to love neighbor. Jesus says, you have to turn that up a little bit. You have to love God and love neighbor in the way that I have loved you. That's the quality with which you must love. How does Jesus love? Jesus says in John chapter 15, verse 12, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus says the quality with which you are to love each other is a sacrificial love. You need to love each other so much that you are willing to die for your friends. Not only that, in Romans chapter 5, 8, we learned that Jesus didn't just die for his friends, but Jesus also died for his enemies. Paul writes to the Roman Christian, God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Christ's love is all-encompassing. Christ loves his friends with a sacrificial love. Christ loves his enemies with a sacrificial love. We are called to do the same. Now, of course, we can't do that, can we? So God gives us the gospel. God always comes to us and says that when you confess your sins, when you can't follow the law the way that you're called to follow the law, there's always gospel. There is always the free forgiveness of sins. For those who are, who are called according to God's purpose, come confess your sins, lay down your burdens, and I will forgive you. I will never leave you or forsake you. But that doesn't change the fact that we are still called to love with a high quality of love. Now, how do we do this? You know, there's, there's, this, uh, there's this Greek idea uh, that, that I read recently that uh, true love or true justice is, is to love your friends and hate your enemies. Love your friends, hate your enemies. If you do that, then you're doing pretty good. And I would say a lot of American culture has sort of adopted that idea. You know, if someone treats you well, if they're your friend, you should love them. But if someone's bad, evil, if they don't treat you very well, well, you don't really need to love them. Is that what Jesus says? No. Jesus lays down his life for his friends, and he lays down his life for his enemies. We learn from this that love isn't so much a feeling, but love is an action. This is really important for us to understand this because we often talk about love the way that a romance comedy talks about love. Oh, I just feel these wonderful feelings for this person. That's not bad. You know, I'm I'm all about good loving feelings. But those feelings are then enacted through works, through deeds, through action. You see, God loves us, so he sends Jesus Christ to live a perfect, sinless life, and to die on the cross that we might be saved. Jesus' love is enacted through sacrifice. Our love should also be enacted. Let us turn to our culture and think, how does our culture define love? It's certainly not the way that the scripture thinks about love. Our culture's definition of love is to affirm, to approve, to support an idea of affirmation, an idea of approving. You know, if you're going to love somebody, then you have to approve of everything that they do. If you're going to show love to your neighbor at work, that means that you can't get on to them about bad things that they do or sinful things that they do, right? Because, well, that's not showing love. And I'm sure you've all been in that conversation before where you you may pull someone aside, may pull a close friend aside, and who's ruining their life <laughs> by their own choices. And you say, friend, what are you doing? You, you can't continue to go down this road. You can't continue to do the drugs. You can't continue to give yourself to that alcohol. You need to really address this rage problem that you have, this anger issue, whatever it is that our friends struggle with. And hopefully they received it. But oftentimes, our culture teaches people that to love is to affirm. And if you're not affirming, you're not loving. So how dare you tell them that, that they can't live their life the way that they choose to live their life? How dare you tell that drug addict that they can't do drugs? How dare you tell that alcoholic that they can't give themselves to alcohol? How dare you tell that woman that she cannot have an abortion? How dare you, Christian? That is hate. That's hate speech. That is not what scripture teaches one bit. The scriptural definition of love is not affirmation. It's not approval. The scriptural definition is found in places like Philippians 2 and 1 Corinthians 13. Let me read Philippians 2 real quick to you. And he writes, If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation of the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And this is what that looks like. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul says, according to the Philippians, Philippians chapter 2 verse 1, that love is service. Love is humble. Love is not selfish. Love looks to the interests of others. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul has another list that he gives to define Christian love. Beginning in verse 4, love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy or boast, it is not arrogant or rude, it does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable or resentful, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth, rejoices with the truth. Keep that in mind because we're going to come back to it in just a moment. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Paul says love is patient, it's kind, it's humble, it's modest. It rejoices with the truth. Christian love serves God and serves neighbor according to truth. According to truth. In light of this, and in light of God's command to love everyone as he has loved us, how do we engage our God-hating, death-loving culture with Christ-like love and service? How do we honor God in our conversation? Especially in light of the current abortion issues that you will find yourself (laughs) arguing about over the next several weeks. See, our culture declares that it's unloving and unjust to rob the rights of the women. To rob the rights of a woman. Thus, when a woman desires an abortion, love demands that we support her decision. Now, this puts the cart before the horse. This is a completely wrong way of thinking about it. uh, For a number of reasons. First of all, the Bible never speaks about rights. The Bible talks in language of responsibilities. All right, if we're going to be true Christians who are bathed in the language of scripture, then the first place we go shouldn't be about the rights of a person. Now, do people have rights? Absolutely. I'm not saying people don't have rights. And I think our American constitution defines those rights very well. I'm not saying, I'm not preaching against the rights of people, um, but I'm saying the language of scripture starts with responsibility rather than with the idea of a person's rights. Okay. You see, rights get into the language of autonomy. I am my own person. I have rights. It's very self-focused. Responsibility, on the other hand, is for the other. Responsibility happens in relationship. I am responsible to someone above me, and I am responsible for someone below me. Responsibility is focused on our neighbors. It's not focused on ourselves. And as Christians, we need to be people who are quick to be responsible rather than quick to brag about our own rights that we may have. And I want to say, the central issue in the abortion debate is not women's rights. The central issue in the abortion debate is the humanness of the fetus. That's where our conversations need to begin in this abortion conflict. It's not about whether the mother has a right for autonomy, bodily autonomy. But we must first answer the question, is that fetus a human child? If that fetus is a human child, then the answer immediately is you can't abort them because you can't take a human life according to God's law and according to the American law. We have to start there. Then we can talk about women's rights and all this other stuff. But we must start first with the humanness of the baby and answer that question. Now, I want you to understand. I don't want you to mishear me. I'm not speaking against women's rights as well. I think the rights of of a human is extremely important, not just the baby, but also the mother. And as Christians, we should be people who always stand for the rights of a person whether it's the rights of, uh, of, a, uh, of a black person we're dealing with issues of slavery, whether it's the rights of this, that, and the other person, we need to be people who love our neighbor and therefore stand up for the welfare of our neighbor. But that does not mean that a person's rights can ever allow sin to take place. And if we think that a person's rights will somehow overcome the sinful act, we are wrong. If the sinful act is killing a baby, if the baby is indeed human, and it is, then the rights of a mother or the rights of a woman does not play into the conversation at all. We continue to return to the idea of whether this baby is human or not. And of course, Scripture teaches that it is. Scripture teaches that God formed us in the womb. God is putting this child together in the womb. So let's talk about ethics for a minute. And I want you to follow my logic here. For Christians, God's law is the objective moral standard. The law is God's heart for morality. So there's two conclusions we need to draw about God's law. Because God is good, the law is good. God's law is a good thing. We need to understand that properly. You know, theologians talk about several different uses of the law, and there's one use of the law that condemns us in our sin. When we come to the law, we realize, oh, wow, when I I look at God's law, when I look at the Ten Commandments, I realize I don't measure up to that. Does that make the law bad? No, that makes the law good, because you know what the law does? It drives me to repentance. It drives me to the feet of Jesus where he's willing to forgive my sins again. So the law is good. But there's another use of the law. It's having been freely forgiven through the grace of Jesus Christ in his gospel. I now turn to the law to see how I am to treat others. As I've already said, the first four commandments are how we engage our relationship with God. The latter six are how we engage our relationship with neighbor. It's how we love God and how we love neighbor. We read that already. In uh, and, and our liturgy, love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. We do that by drawing from the law. So the law is good because God is good. Second, because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, God's law doesn't change. God's law does not change because of the waves of our culture. You know, culture is always changing. Culture is always in flux. You know, morality according to the culture is always changing. You know, just, excuse me, just 150, 200 years ago, it was okay to have slaves. The culture said that a African person is less human than the white person. That's what our culture taught. Our culture was wrong in teaching that. If our culture had examined God's law, it would not have arrived at that conclusion. Thank God today we have realized our problem and corrected our culture. But today our culture is saying, well, the fetus is not quite human. The fetus is is less of a person than you and I. Therefore, we can do what we want with it, right? You see, it's the same argument. Those people who are pro-choice are using the same argument that the slaveholder used about the African man. And I look forward to a day in America where we will look back on the abortion conflict as something that is past, where we will look back on this and say, my gosh, isn't it so good that we don't do that anymore? Just like we can look back over 200 years of American history and say, isn't it so good that we no longer have slaves? Isn't it great that, great, that God uh, inspired men like William Wilberforce to end the slave trade in Britain? Isn't it great that, that that God had raised these people up to stand up for truth and righteousness? Yes, that's a good thing. And God, I believe, is raising up people in today's culture to stand up against the atrocity that is abortion. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and God's law does not change with culture. What was true and good 200 years ago, according to God's law was true and good 500 years ago, was true and good 1,000 years ago, according to God's law. And it's true and good today. It does not change. Humans are made in the image of God. We learn this from Genesis chapter 1. When God created everything, He created humanity in particular to reflect and bear His image to the world. Humans are made in the image of God. Not only is the baby in the womb made in the image of God, but we must also not forget that the mother of the baby, that confused, scared mother, is also made in the image of God. So we need to honor not only the image of God in the baby, we need to honor the image of God in the mother. The next thing, if God's law is his heart for morality... And because humans are made in the image of God, then it follows that God's law is written on every human heart. God's law is written on our hearts. This is what Paul actually teaches in Romans 2.15. God has written his law on our hearts. We sort of naturally know what's right and wrong. When we get to the ethics of it, it gets a little hazy, but God's written it on our hearts. He's written his law on our hearts because we bear his image. Therefore, when we break God's law, we inflict a moral injury on our soul. You see that? No matter which law it is that you're breaking, whether you're coveting, whether you're lying, whether you're stealing, whether you're having an adulterous affair, whether you're committing murder, you are harming your soul. Sin is a disease. It's a sickness. It's a corruption in our heart. And every time we sin, we are giving ourselves to that corruption. The gospel comes as a healing balm that God applies to our hearts to save us and to heal us from the corruption of sin. So let us never think that if I just go do this sin over here, I'm okay because I can ask for forgiveness later. Because God's law is written on our heart, when we break his law, we necessarily injure ourselves. We are harming our souls. We are harming our hearts. Therefore, to stand by while women injure their souls one portion after another is the most unloving thing we could possibly do. Does that make sense? Our culture says to love is to affirm. And if you don't affirm, you're hating. Christianity says, to love is to serve. To love is to protect. To love is to seek the moral good for all. And when someone does something that they know that, that we know will hurt themselves, we have to say no. This is going to harm you. My son, three years old, if he had his druthers, he would have Oreos for every single meal of the day. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. In fact, sometimes when he wakes up, he, he, he knows I say no all the time, but he still tries it. He looks at me and goes, Dad, can I, have, can I have cookies for breakfast? No. No, son, you cannot have cookies for breakfast. Okay. Lunch time. Hey, Dad, can I have some Oreos? No, you cannot have Oreos. At dinner. Dad, can I have some Oreos? Okay, you can have some Oreos for dessert, you know. But if he had his druthers, he would eat Oreos breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Why do I tell him no? Why do I tell him you can't do that? Do I tell him no because I'm being an unloving parent because I'm not affirming him and his craving for Oreos? No. I tell him no because I love him. I tell him no because I actually know what's best for him and his health. And I want him to grow into a healthy person. We could take the same idea and translate it to our current arguments with abortion. When people believe that they need to go have an abortion... Do we sit back and we say, well, okay, you know, I'll affirm that in you or whatever the issue might be. No, we say, "Uh uh-uh, because I love you, I don't want you to harm yourself. And I know that if you do this, you will harm yourself because God's law doesn't change. And because God's law is written on your heart. That's what scripture teaches. You may not believe that, okay? You may be talking to a person that doesn't believe that, doesn't believe in the Bible, it hates God, whatever. I don't have any, any place for that in my life. That doesn't change the fact that that person is still created in the image of God, and that doesn't change the fact that God's law is written on that person's heart. You know better than that person. So we serve that person. We serve that person in love. The way that Christ loves people. See, Christ died on the cross to a crowd who was saying, crucify him, crucify him. That's the sacrificial love that he, said, that he says that we are called to live out. Christ went to the cross for a bunch of Jews who hated him. They were spitting on him and pulling out his beard. And you know what he says in the midst of that? He says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. That's the love with which Christ engaged his culture. He was willing to lay down his life for these people who hated him. He was willing to lay down his life for his friends who abandoned him in his hour of need. He laid down his life for his enemies. We too, as Christians following the way of Christ, following in the footsteps of our master, are called to stand up for love. Stand up for truth. Stand up for righteousness. And if we are hated, if we are reviled, we don't hate back. We don't cast judgment on the person. We don't say, Well, you're just a a dumb liberal. We don't say that. We pray for that person. We pray, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Lord, change their heart. Friends, these people don't know any better, do they? I'm reminded I have a, a, fr- a friend of mine who just got married and uh, and her her new husband is not a good guy. <laughs> now, he's he's not a Christian, so he's kind of arrogant, he's sort of selfish, you know, but all in all, he treats her well and he's a, he's he's a, he's a he's an okay guy to talk to, right? Now, all my other friends hate this guy. They're like, "Oh, I can't believe she I can't believe she married this total loser." I sort of approach the situation a little bit differently. I say, well, of course, of course he's that way. He doesn't know Jesus. Of course he's that way. He's not regenerate. He doesn't have grace. We do. We know better. We know how we're supposed to act. We've been walking with God for a long time. And when I look at this friend, when I look at the husband of this friend, it actually drives me to thankfulness, to thank God that, Lord, thank you that I am not who I was when you saved me. Thank you that you have taken me and you've grown me up in the gospel. By your grace, I have been saved. I don't, I don't look at my friend and say, thank you, I'm not like that guy. That's, that's not how we do it. But we say, wow, Lord, I, I was. I was like that guy. I was sort of a jerk. I still am in a lot of ways, folks. The Lord's still sanctifying me. But I, I, I was crooked deep down deep issues. I had had sins that that were wretched. Lord, thank you that you have saved me and that you have bathed me in your gospel. You have washed away my sins. I thank you that you continue to sanctify me because if you had left me where I was, I would very likely be far worse than this man that my friend married. That's the attitude I think we need to have when we engage these, these conversations over the next several weeks and over the next several months. Or thank you that you have saved me. Thank you that you have changed my heart. Thank you that you have told me the truth about this and revealed this to me. For we only know this truth because God has given it to us. God has revealed it to us. I don't expect some of my more progressive liberal friends, and they are friends, right? They're not enemies. I love them. I don't expect my more progressive liberal friends to get this because they don't know Jesus. Why should I expect them to get this? They don't know Jesus. But that doesn't stop me from trying to engage them in conversation. That doesn't stop me from still seeking for their good. Even though I may know what's better for them, not that I know. Scripture has taught me what's better for them, and I believe the scriptures. I still seek for their good. I still serve them in love. And should that time come when we are persecuted for our beliefs, should that time come when hate speech becomes the most terrible thing a person can do in America and they are imprisoned for it, and I believe that time will come in America, should that time come, may we rejoice like the apostles did when they were preaching the gospel and they were imprisoned by the Jews. In just a few moments, we're going to celebrate together the Holy Communion meal where Christ Jesus comes to us to give us his own body and blood. And I want you to think through, through what's going on here. God comes to us in love. God's not obligated to come to us, right? He comes to us because he loves us. He comes to us because He loves us. He comes to us because He wants to sanctify us. He wants to strengthen us in (coughs) our faith. He comes to us as a Father, comes to His children, loving them, protecting them, sanctifying them. We are called through the Eucharist, through God's example to us, to take that love out to the world. We are called to be a Eucharistic community, a Eucharist church, not just because we believe in the sacraments, but because it's through the sacraments that we are empowered, set free, and taught how to properly orient our desires when it comes to loving God and loving our neighbor. We are to take the love that God puts into us and let that cup run over onto our neighbors everywhere we go. That includes your conversations in your workplace. They should be sprinkled with love. That includes your conversations on Facebook and Twitter, where most of the time they're not sprinkled with love. Not you specifically, but just conversations that happen on social media. We think that because we're behind a computer, we can can be crude and, and, and unloving. Not at all. We will be held accountable for every word, even the words that our fingers type. We are always called to show love. We are called to be examples of Christ. We are called to be a Eucharistic community carrying Christ's love to the world. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would show us how to love. We pray that you would give us wisdom as we engage our culture, especially over the the tough issues that our culture wrestles with. We pray that you would always strengthen us by the power of your Holy Spirit to always speak love and not judgment, to speak love and not hatred, We thank you that you have first loved us, and it's because of your love that we are set free to love others. We pray all this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Thank you again for joining us on the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd, Pelham, Alabama podcast. We hope that you would visit us in person. We have Sunday worship uh, every Sunday at 1030 in the morning. And you can visit us on our website at www.goodshepherdacna.com or visit us on Facebook at Good Shepherd ACNA. Also, if you enjoy the podcast, please like, subscribe, and rate the podcast. It not only makes us feel better, but more importantly, it helps those who are searching for Anglican podcasts find podcasts like this one and other ones that are out there on the web. Thank you, God bless, and have a good one. The Lord be with you, and with thy spirit, lift up your hearts. We lift them up unto the Lord. Let us give thanks unto our Lord God, it is meet and right so to do.